loss of focus, a loss of a sense of what are meant to be first things is a, is a tragic loss, a tragic thing always. Case in point, soccer parents. You would be shocked at the things, maybe you would, I don't know, shocked at the things that I see and the things that I hear on any given Saturday uh, out there on the fields. Uh, parents who, I can only assume, signed up their children with the idea in mind of uh, the opportunity to learn a sport, uh, the opportunity to benefit from some discipline in a, in a good sense, um, uh, teamwork, uh, to make some friends, to get some exercise, something happens along the way and before they know what's happened that is readily apparent to everyone around them they are now yelling yelling at the officials yelling at the coach yelling at the other players on the other team and then maybe even their own and when it really gets out of hand yelling at their own child I've seen it it's a sad, pathetic that the tragedy of, of focus, loss, of where first things are just gone. Here's my question. Is it possible that we could do the same? Is it possible that you and I and together as a body could do the same? That we could tragically lose sight of first things. It is more than you know. More than you dare to imagine. We talk about worship. I mentioned that earlier in the hour. This is, uh, the last few weeks have sort of been the introduction to our, our new vision statement for the church. We are now diving into, driving into the heart the very heart, the very essence of what it is for, that God is calling us to be and to do, to worship Him. With that in mind, we're going to look at the book of Malachi, uh, the first chapter. Now, i got to tell you, this is not going to be a detailed exposition. I'm not going to even try. I don't have the time. Um, it's a summary. It's sort of a getting into some themes there that I think that you will, you will see. Malachi. Malachi. Makes so readily clear to us that, that we are God's chosen people. And as his chosen people, as those whom he has called out and set his name upon and set his affections upon, his God's passion for us as his people is that we would come to know in the depths of our being the radical implications of his grace. Malachi 1, let's read verses 6 through 14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you by saying that the Lord's table may be despised? When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your God. 
Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. It's the word of God. Pray with me. As a deer pants for flowing stream, so our souls pant for you, God. As our souls thirst for you, for the living God. None other will satisfy. None other. None other is worthy. Rivet our eyes on your throne, the throne of grace, the one who sits in it, who loves us. It's the grace. Ptolemy. Ptolemy was an ingenious second century astronomer and mathematician whose theories, ideas, whose writings dominated the scientific world up until about the 16th century, actually. Uh, you may know Ptolemy created what is now uh, referred to as the Ptolemaic system. It was a, a model, a description, if you will, describing the workings of the universe and the orbits. And the idea was this, that at the Earth was the center. And around the Earth orbited the sun and the moon and the planets. You understand, Ptolemy was an ingenious man. No one really had come up with such a detailed explanation as to how all these orbits and how all these observed phenomena in the heavens were taking place. Ptolemy was an ingenious man very wrong. 
14 centuries later, Nicholas Copernicus recognized, looking at all the mathematics and the observations, and realized something's amiss here. The universe does not orbit around the Earth. In our solar system, it's the sun that's at the center. And the Earth and all the other planets orbit around it. And that then set in motion, that idea then set in motion what is historians now call the Copernican Revolution. Folks, when it comes to this topic of worship, we need a Copernican Revolution. The things that we so often put at the center need to be out in orbit. A part of the system, yes, but not in the middle. The things that we have, or the one that we have out there in orbit at the periphery, needs to be grounded right there in the middle. The focus of it all. Our great God and our great Savior. Worship is about Him. Worship is an expression of His worth. It is for Him. It's already been alluded to already. Worship is for Him. And chiefly so for Him and His pleasure. And not chiefly so for us and our pleasure. Because it's not about us. Here's a shot across the bow of your heart. It is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about any of us. It's about Him. And we have to begin there. Yes, there are other components. We're going to talk about that over the next few minutes. There are other components that have to be vitally integrated into what worship is for it to be pleasing to the one true living God. There are other components, but they are not... There's but, there's but one foundational emphasis, and it is God. It is the praise. It is the adoration. It is the exaltation of our great Creator and Savior, who is so greatly worthy of our praise. Now that said, recognizing that there are other components that we need to understand and need to be incorporated, what might they be? What might they be and how are they to be incorporated? Well, the first has to do with outreach, recognition of the presence of of others, of seekers, of those with questions and wrestling with the claims of Christ here in our midst. That is a necessary component. It must be wedded to the worship of His people for worship of His people to be pleasing in His sight. Why do I say that? Consider the theme of invitation in the Scriptures all throughout. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 9 through 10. Who are we after all? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There is an audience. We are His priests. And there is an audience around us waiting to hear what we will say. Longing to hear, whether they know it or not, what we will say. That theme of invitation, though, also is soaked through and through in the Psalms. I've said this many times. Please hear me say it at least one more time. Bear with me. Psalm 96. This is just a sampling of a few places we could look in the Psalms. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. 
sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the people. Psalm 100, verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Who is that invitation being given to? The nations. Come, is what the psalmist is saying. Psalm 105, verses 1 through 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Invitation. That invitation, that word of welcome and come. Come to the fountain of life. Come is a huge component of what worship must be. It must be incorporated into what real biblical worship is to the true and living God. It has to be present. We have to expect that seekers, inquirers, those hurting and longing for the very things that have become so dear to us will be in our midst. And dare I say, make a place for them. Make the necessary adjustments for them. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Have your Bibles turn with me there. And I want you to think with me about the principles that Paul lays out here in a much larger discussion. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 23. Those of you who are familiar with this letter know that this is where Paul's talking about prophesying and speaking in tongues. That's the context. But he's also talking about the what is right in public worship. What ought to be. Verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What is Paul saying here? We get so tripped up on the teachings regarding prophecy and tongues, we fail to recognize the interplay, the relationship that Paul is drawing our attention to here regarding public worship and, yes, evangelism, and the place that that has within that larger framework. Paul is saying here that, that seekers, inquirers, non-Christians will be repelled by that which is unintelligible to them. That by that which makes no sense to them whatsoever. And they will then reject the claims of the gospel. Unnecessarily, if you will. And that should not be so. Outreach. Making a place for people. Building bridges to people. You don't invite someone into your home and then not set something before them, do you? Make them find their way through the kitchen and they've never been there before, do you? I hope not. Bad host you are. No. No. For worship to be pleasing in the sight of our God, Outreach, the recognition of the presence of seekers in our midst must be, it is, it is a necessary component. But that said, I'm saying that very strongly, but I'm going to say this equally strongly. It is a necessary component, but it is not the foundational emphasis. 
is not the fundamental emphasis. We are to make the gospel intelligible. But we cannot make it comfortable. Because the gospel, by very nature, will always make us uncomfortable. 1 Corinthians, earlier in the, that very letter I just read from a moment ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Hear me. The gospel truly proclaimed will always cause offense. It will always, in all of its comforts, bring a great discomfort as well. It has a way of flipping us all upside down. We have to hold both of these things together. God is the focus. He is the seeker. We are seeker-sensitive in that sense. Sensitive to the seeker, the one who is seeking others to bring them in. Now, what are the implications of this for us? Because there are some. Well, for starters, it means that we should be inviting people we care for to come here and be a part of this celebration, this worship. It means we should be inviting people we care for. Perhaps it also means we should be caring for more people. That's part of the application. Another part of the application is making strides creatively in a way that, that is right, that allows for the balance between 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Corinthians 1, making strides to make our service here together intelligible to those who just, this is foreign to them. Explaining things along the way, being careful about the language and verbiage that we use along the way, not making such a, the, the, the churchy assumptions that we make about it. But it is a crass, false dichotomy, folks, to say we have to please God and then think nothing of caring for the needs of people. That is a crass, false dichotomy. You can't do, you can't please God and look after the needs of others. Can't be done. Inviting those we care for, making strides, lastly, expecting conviction. Expecting, longing, that as we worship the one true living God and celebrate the gospel of grace and all of its implications together, expect that God will then bring conviction upon the hearts of those who are in our presence. Expect that long for that. We should not just be communicating the gospel to our neighbors, we should also be celebrating the gospel in their presence. All that said, it's not about them. If you're here, let me just set this aside here. If, if you're here, I don't know you all, almost you, not all of you. If you're here, and you kind of feel like that's where you are, a seeker, an inquirer, wrestling with the implications. Well, who is this Jesus? What is this gospel business? What grace? I, I don't quite... I'm thrilled. You are right where you need to be. 
But that said, in all love, let me say this is not about you. It's not about any of us. This, what we're doing here this morning, worshiping the true and living God, is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about any of us. It's about Him. That's who this is all about. Now that said, the outreach component has to be included in there for it to be about Him, the God who has the seeking heart. The second component that we need to talk about is not just that of outreach, but that of inreach, recognizing not just the presence of seekers, but the presence of believers. I know some of you are thinking, I know what you're thinking about. Right you're thinking, I've gone off the deep end. Read the Bible. Read the scriptures for yourself and dig deeply in these principles. What about the saints, you're asking? What about the Christians? Or is this not for us? Oh, is it for you, ultimately? Come now, think with me. Yes, is a necessary component. Yes, the invitation goes out to us to come, to come to us as well. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Psalm 84. Getting back into the Psalms just for a minute. Psalm 84, verses 1 through 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. St. Augustine. Some of you know the quote from his confessions. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Oh, how true all of that is. He has created us with this deep yearning within for him, but also for assembling together with his people is how we were made. A mark of Christian maturity is not Lone Ranger spirituality, folks. That is a mark of Christian immaturity. A mark of Christian maturity is to long to be in His presence among His people. It is humility recognizing that you need that. Psalm 63, David, we see this so clearly here. In his words, the context, he's on the run. Uh, Absalom has seized control of the throne. David is in exile. He's, he's, he's running. He's trying to get away. What do we read here? What ought we to take away from this? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. David is cut off from all that he treasured, all that he longed for. What does he long for more than anything? Relief? No. For worship, the presence of the true and living God and also the presence of His people. That's what he's most deeply missing. That's what he's most painfully longing for. And the Psalms don't just express our hearts. They're meant to shape our hearts. That's why we have them. That's what we're, uh, the beat of our own hearts is to be like here. What we see with David. That said, this essential, necessary component that, that, that has to be a part of worship that is real and true to the real, true, living God, recognizing that we are all here struggling 
recognizing that we all are coming with questions and concerns and aches, burdens that we don't even can't even articulate at times, recognizing that part of the worship service has to address all of that, that is not all of it. Because it's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about Him. That's why we're here. We still bow. The fundamental emphasis of our time together in these gatherings is God and God alone is our focus. Chiefly, chiefly so. What are the implications of this? Because there are some that we should come Come when you don't feel like it. You know what I've learned? That's exactly, of course, I'm paid to come. But come. Come when you don't feel like it because that's exactly when you need to. Do you ever think about that? Why are you running? Who are you running from? You need to come. Come even when you don't want to. Come with empty hands. Come knowing that He is the only one who can fill them. Fill them. Come longing to express, perhaps even just to awaken deep, heartfelt yearning, deep, heartfelt satisfaction in Christ, in Christ alone. You come with all of that in mind, but you come knowing, again, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about anybody in this room. Jesus. And that's why we come third component is the necessary and essential and fundamental component. The, out, the realities of not just outreach, the realities of not just inreach, but of upreach, the, a, a recognition and awareness, not just of the presence of others, not just the presence of ourselves, but the presence of God. Chiefly, chiefly. So let me go back to Malachi. You were wondering, what are we going to talk about Malachi? Malachi chapter 1. I'm just going to hit a couple of the high points. I think if you go back and reread this section with some of what we've already said in mind, you will see some of those other two themes we've talked about here. The aspects of outreach, the aspects of inreach, they're present here even in this crisis of worship that Malachi is addressing here. But the main thing is worship has just come apart of the scenes and it is just fractured. And it's become a mockery to, to God. Malachi addresses chiefly more than anything the aspect of upreach. Verse 6, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. Verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Skipping down just a a little further, verse 13, but you say, I get this, this is what they're saying about worship. You say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. Their worship was pitiful and careless and dishonoring to God. The who of worship, they had forgotten. The who of worship is Him, the Lord. Zechariah, I know we're really asking a lot of you to be trying to even find Malachi, but it's okay because Zechariah is only one book to the left. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. 
get this. Who is this about? Who is this for? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Do you hear what's being said here? Our assembling together, corporate worship, is not about your pleasure and what you get out of it. It's about God's pleasure and what, if you will, He gets out of it. That is the focus here. This is an astonishing text, Zechariah chapter 7. That, that He would even care. But He doesn't just slightly care, sort of care. He is passionately interested in the pleasurable worship of his people. That is to say, worship that honors him. Worship that is focused on him. This is not about us, this is about him. Back to uh, Haggai. Now keep going, one book to the left. You can do it, you can do it. Just one more book. Haggai, verse, chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. We read this a moment ago. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, go up to the hills, bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. That which honors him, pleases him. And he is saying... Honor me. Think with me just for a moment. Um, a child's birthday party. Maybe that brings terror to some of you. But, but the idea is this. The, the, the plans. How, how are the plans made? How should they be made? For a child's birthday party, are the plans made according to the wishes of those who are invited? Is it may, are the plans of the party, what's going to happen, where it's going to take place, and all those things, is it, is it, is it dictated by the, the preferences of those who are on the invitation list? Is it dictated by the wishes, the desires, the preferences of the family members who do have? And we're glad, you're glad that those who, sh- who were invited show up. You're, you're glad that the family members can play an active role in, in the party itself. But according to whose wishes and desires are the plans for the party made? The one you're ostensibly honoring, right? The guest of honor. Is it not the same here? At least in some way. Is that not the same here? At least it should be. Which then brings me to moving from the who of worship to the war of worship. Now you've heard me talk about this before. The fights regarding this. I'm going to say they're silly. I better not say that. Um... The things that churches fight about regarding what should be done and how it should be done don't begin in the pews. They don't begin in the parking lot. They don't begin at the Sunday buffet or around the roast at home. They begin here in the heart. Genesis chapter 4. Let me take you to the first worship war. Genesis chapter 4. The worship wars begin with the fall. Verse 2, Genesis 4. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering 
of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This is the first example of a war fought over worship, the first recorded example of a fatality, but sadly not the last. And it begins in the heart. And the result? Distractions in worship. Now by that, I don't mean person clipping their nails. I see. It, I don't mean the person who's gotten up for the umpteenth time with no rational reason to do so or gone out doors. I, I don't mean the person who's whispering too loudly or snoring too loudly. I don't mean the person who's unwrapping that candy wrapper again and so slowly. Just do it. Don't do it so slowly. Just do it. Get it over with. That's not the application really, but... Um, I'm not talking about those distractions. I'm talking about distractions. The real distractions of worship are thinking that we can come on our own terms. I'm thinking it's about us. That is the chief distraction of worship, coming with a utilitarian mindset that makes worship our God. That asks the question, what's in it for me? How do I benefit from this? That's the chief distraction. When we think it's about us. When it's not. When it's really about the true and living God. Back 